If you would, take out your Bibles once again and turn with me to Psalm 98. That's the psalm on which the hymn Joy to the World is based, as well as uh, turn to 1 John 4. In fact, in a few moments I'll read Psalm 98, but then we'll spend most of our time in 1 John 4. As we Go to God's word. Let's go to him once again in prayer, asking for his aid and assistance to do what otherwise would be impossible. And that is to understand his word and put it into practice. Let's go before the Lord. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our minds to know, open our hearts to receive the glorious truth that we are about to spend time contemplating. Father, would you enable us to see our desperate plight as sinful humans, but also to see our glorious rescue through none other than the second person of the Trinity on earth in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, be pleased to meet with your gathered people now and change us by your word and spirit, we pray. Amen. We're on the last week. Um, the whole series has been the final four, but this is really the final one. Um, we are unpacking and exposing the biblical truth found in the hymn, Joy to the World, the Lord has Come. We've been using this hymn as a point of departure into the scriptures. And as you've been seeing each week, uh, the hymn's central theme is there is great joy. Great joy in the Lord's coming, in His rule, in His blessing, and in His favor. Isaac Watts was an English hymn writer. He lived from 1674 to 1748, and he's known as the father of English hymnody. Others followed in the trail he blazed. He's written upwards of 750 hymns, and he is really the pioneer in many ways of contemporary Christian music. He took the Psalms, and he looked at the Psalms in particular through the lens of the New Testament. He looked at the Psalms through the reality that Christ had come. And you'll notice on this insert, you'll see the, uh, the whole hymn he wrote out of Psalm 95, part one, praise for the gospel, part two, the Messiah's coming and kingdom. And in 1719, this hymn was found in a collection of hymns called the Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. Watts is not just paraphrasing the Psalms to make them more singable. He, he's imitating the Psalms through, again, the lens of the Old Testament. Because, you know, we are a people here at Grace and Peace, of course, that believe the Bible is Old Testament and New Testament. And sadly, much of the Christian world kind of forgets about the first half of God's word to us. But there's no way we could understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And we come to an understanding of the Old Testament through the New Testament. And that's what Watts is doing. For those of you that were here that first week when we looked at uh, joy in his coming, you may remember that 
the question was asked, when is a Christmas carol not a Christmas carol? Joy to the world. Because if you look at it closely, it's about the second advent of Jesus. It's about the coming king to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. But of course, it's also rightly applied to the first arrival of the king, the newborn king who will return as the conquering king. Let me go ahead now and read Psalm 98. It's printed in the bulletin, but also, of course, in your Bibles. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth, He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, the entire hymn, as we just saw from Psalm 98 as well, is jubilant. And last week we read into the triumphant note found in verse 3 that he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And yet the hymn concludes and leaves us with a focus on the wonders of of his love. It's interesting you see this and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. His righteousness and the wonders of his love. Remember the angel's announcement. We read in Luke 2 good news. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. That's verse 10, and in verse 14 we read, Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Another translation says, Peace on whom His favor rests. Great joy in His favor. Great joy in the wonders of His love. Now let's spend a few moments taking a look at the wonders, and then let's consider His love. And wonders of his love. Have you lost your sense of wonder? I mean, really, when was the last time you were speechless as you saw something? When was the last time you, you couldn't quite even internally come up with the words to describe this, this rapt attention, this astonishment, this Something that is awesomely mysterious or new to your experience. I think one of the reasons why many of us have lost our sense of wonder is it takes time. 
right? You don't get a sense of wonder going from web, web page to web page to web page. Facebook does not stimulate wonder. Twitter and Instagram are just that. Twitter and Instagram, not wonder. Not wonder at the Lord at His creation. I mean, as bad as some of us may look sometimes, I mean, we look in the mirror, even looking in the mirror at, at male and female, God made us in His image, should give us a sense of wonder. When was the last time you had a sense of wonder? A cause of astonishment or admiration, a, a miracle, the quality of something exciting, amazing, some admirable thing. Well, most of us have heard of seven wonders of the world. Various lists have been compiled from the ancient to the present time to catalog the world's most spectacular natural wonders or man-made structures. Structures. Uh, there's seven wonders of the ancient world, and it's the first known list of the most remarkable creations of classical antiquity based on popular guidebooks of the day. It included uh, only works located around the Mediterranean Sea, and the number seven, of course, was, was, uh, was used to present and represent perfection. And among the seven wonders of the ancient world were the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Statue of Zeus at Olympus, the Lighthouse at Alexandria, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Wonders. Even the world, the unbelieving world, can have a sense of wonder. But here, Watts is helping us start to focus and think about the wonders of his love. Now, in a few moments, we're going to spend quite a bit of time looking at, what is it, undeserved love, incarnate love, and transforming love. But let's make a couple of general comments about God's love. People are confused about the love of God. On the one hand, in a world with suffering, violence, so much damage, so many broken lives, um, people say, how can there be a God who loves? And yet, on the other hand, as D.A. Carson in his commentary on 1 John writes, if there is one thing that our world thinks it knows about God, if our world believes in God at all, is that He is a loving God. The world is confused about love, but the Scriptures are going to make love unmistakably clear. Because Watts is drawing our attention at the end of his hymn to the wonders of his love. And among the many wonders of God's love, we're going to take a look at just three. Three that are found in our New Testament text of 1 John 4. Because Watts is using the New Testament to understand and apply the Psalms. There is great joy because of God's salvation. There is joy because of God's love. And so we're going to take a look for the next few minutes at the wonder of undeserved love. The wonder of incarnate love. And finally, the wonder of transforming love. 
First, the wonder of undeserved love. How many of you all have heard the question asked of you? Or even how many of you have asked this question? Or or, why do you love me? We've all asked that question to someone. Why do you love me? And what is the initial answer given, the somewhat unsatisfactory answer? We think, because I do. Why do you love me? Because I do. Parents, if you've got any uh, ways to help me uh, better explain that uh, to some people, let me know. I would, I'd be glad to receive your counsel. Look with me at 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Verse 7, for love is from God. At the end of verse 8, God is love. It's the inner Trinitarian love of the Father for the Son and the Spirit and the Spirit's love for the Father. God is love in and of Himself. As Robert Letham writes in his book, The Holy Trinity, that that you've got to understand that God is triune in order to understand that God can even love because He has love inherent in His very being. God is love. And in verse 10, we see this love is undeserved. It's not initiated by us. It's not that we loved God. Oh yes, we are called to love God lots of places in Scripture. But it's not that we loved God and made the first move. It's that He loved us. We heard earlier in Deuteronomy. Why does the Lord love His people? Because He loves them. The Lord, in Deuteronomy 10, we read, The Lord set His heart upon His people in love, and He chose them. His sovereign choice. He set His affection on them because He loved them. That is, He loved them because He loved them. According to the Bible, the fact that God loves us is simply astonishing. And my friends, if you and I sit and think about for a few moments who we are in and of ourselves, and yet God loves us, We should be astonished. We should be astonished. Because man is sinful and man has rebelled. I love you anyway, not because you are lovable, but because I am that kind of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us. Did you hear that? Because of the great love with which He loved us. I mean, Paul has to repeat himself. Because of the great love with which He loved us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. He saved us. We have gone from being objects of wrath to objects of love. My friends, that is astonishing. And if you find me ever getting not astonished by that, please remind me. 
Please remind me to get my eyes off of the trivial and on to the significant and important. Now, although initially unsatisfying, the answer to the question, why do you love me? Because I love you. That answer still stands. God loves His people because He does. Our text captures the biblical reality that God's love for us is undeserved. His love for us is also incarnate in that it has become visible in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's, it's love in the flesh. Let's take a moment and think about the wonder of incarnate love. Some of you years ago may have seen the movie Forrest Gump. I think Tom Hanks played the role. What a character. And he has this line at some point in the story where he says this. I think it's when he gets rejected by the girl. He says this, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. I think most people, at least on a human level, do understand love because it certainly contrasts with the hate that they often experience. Well, look with me in our text, especially verses 9 and 10. Let me read this again. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. The love of God was made manifest among us. God sent His Son. It, it became obvious, evident, clear, visible, noticeable, plain, observable. Why? Why did God make His love manifest among us? So that we might live through Him. So that we might have life. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but what? Have everlasting life. He has come that we would live and how? How can we live? How can those of us who deserve death live? Because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, some of you may think, propitiation, let's get real. Let's get, let's get a, a, a better word to describe it. Okay, you ready for the better word? Propitiation. Okay? Because what it does is it captures the reality that that God's wrath was not so much turned away or deflected, although expiation is going to talk about that, but it has been exhausted. God's wrath has been exhausted. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. Jesus exhausted God's wrath. Jesus took the wrath of God on sin, on Himself, so that we wouldn't experience God's wrath. Jesus says in John 10 that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy, but He says, I have come that you would have life. How is this life attained? The Father gives His Son for us. Going back to John 3.16, just because you might see it on somebody's football 
helmet or, or somewhere doesn't mean it's not true or it's not real or it's not incredibly significant. For God so loved that He gave. He gave. Paul in Galatians 2 where we were a few weeks ago, Paul the theologian, Paul the precise I'm going to get in your face, Peter, because you're wrong. I am going to get in the face of the false teachers because they are leading people astray. What does Paul say? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved His people. No, he says who loved me and gave Himself for me. Donald Carson again writes this, For the burden of the New Testament is that Jesus dies a substitutionary death. He does not deserve to die. But when God sent Him to do His Father's will to go to the cross and die, it was with a purpose to die our death so that we do not have to die, so that we may have eternal life. My friends, if you say a statement like that, in the broadly evangelical world that we live in, you will be looked at as somebody pretty odd. Substitutionary death? Jesus had to die in our place on our behalf? Absolutely. And where do we get this? Not from some popular author, not from some really cool DVD series. Where do we get it? We get it all over the Scriptures. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why not a lot of people want to believe that Jesus had to die for us, because we don't really want to believe that we are really that bad. But when we realize we really were that sinful that Jesus had to die, and then when we also realize that we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us, that changes our lives. Have you ever heard the expression, either we die or it dies? In order for us to live physically, have you ever thought about this? Something has to die. The cow, the chicken, the pig, the carrots, the lettuce, the grain. You know, those of you who grew up on farms when we were more an agrarian culture, you know it. In order for you to live Something has to die. It's that way spiritually as well. Jesus had to die for us. And that is love. Undeserved love, it's in the scriptures. Incarnate love, it's right there. Transforming love. Well, where do we see that? Well, look at the context of this passage in 1 John. There's a call to love one another in the church, in the body, in the fellowship. Look at the bookends of verses 7 and 11. Let us love one another. We also ought to love one another. Have you ever thought about the fact that this is not something naturally that takes place? We've got to be told to love one another. You don't tell water to flow downhill. You have to tell Christians to love. Why? Because it's not a natural love. It is a supernatural love. 
So how do you get someone, as we consider the wonder of transforming love, how do you get someone to love one another? Is it just a matter of telling them to do it? I mean, there's a number of things in life that I think come down to just do it. But can you just tell somebody to love? I, I uh, was reminded of uh, the other day I was in an orthodontist office, or maybe it was a dental office, and you know they have the, uh, the, the, po- uh, the pictures in waiting rooms of like patience and endurance and teamwork and all these motivational posters. Well, I like the demotivators. Have you all ever heard of the demotivators? Well, here is one of my favorites. It's the demotivator poster arrogance says this, there's a picture I believe of a lion, and it says this, the best leaders inspire by example. When that is not an option, brute intimidation works pretty well too. Nobody laughed? I mean, (laughs) of course brute intimidation does not belong in the life of a Christian because verses 9 and 10 provide the model and the motivation because who God is and what he has done for us in his son is what ultimately constrains obedience from the child of God it's what distinguishes as it were evangelical obedience that is obedience that is based on the gospel from a mere legal obedience Because the supreme motivation for godly living lives in grasping the wonder of God's love for us. Remember Paul writes to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us. Are you being controlled by love right now? Are you being constrained by love? Are you being compelled by love or is it something else in the driver's seat? in the vehicle that you find yourself riding in right now. Remember the Heidelberg Catechism. There's the guilt of your sin. There's the grace of Jesus Christ. And then there's the life of gratitude. And it doesn't just mean a life of saying thank you, although it is that. It is a life of obedience. It is a life of conforming yourself more and more to God's character. There's a great hymn that Indelible Grace does that we've never sung. Love Constraining to Obedience, written by William Cowper, a, or Cooper, a contemporary of John Newton. He says this in the chorus, To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. My friends, do you want someone to change? Love them. God does that with us. Why do we hesitate to do that with others? And a big way to love someone is to pray for them. I was rereading A Praying Life and Paul Miller says, how would you you love someone if you couldn't pray for them? He says it's as awkward as trying to tie your shoes wearing boxing gloves. How would you love someone without praying for them. Here is the church, a community of love, a testimony to the world, the incarnation of love, Jesus, and in a finite and imperfect way in us. 
The wonder of transforming love. It's love unto change. It's grace into change. God in His love and grace meets us where He finds us. But He doesn't leave us there. He moves us forward. Look with me again at the insert. Praise for the gospel, followed by the Messiah's coming and kingdom. The gospel, the good news of God's work of salvation. And you saw in the first few verses of Psalm 98, it's there over and over and over again. And, and Watts sees it absolutely. It's salvation in Christ. And look at verse 3 of Psalm 98. Why? Because the Lord has remembered what? Our obedience? Are you kidding me? The Lord has remembered what? We're better than others? Are you kidding? The Lord has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why. So when the hymn concludes, Watts wants us to remember the wonders. The wonders of God's love. Now, when man comes up with a list of the wonders of the world, what are they? They're man-made. It... Maybe the Golden Gate Bridge. Maybe what used to be the World Trade Center. Man-made wonders. However, when the Bible speaks of wonders, especially the wonders of His love, my friends, they are all God-made. The Christian life is indeed the only one that can be called without cynicism and with all sincerity a wonder life. The Christian life is a wonder-filled and a wonderful life because it's full of the wonder of God's love for sinners. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we make that transition, remember this. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Jesus Himself says, Greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down His life for His friends. My friends, there is no greater love. Christ dies in our place and on our behalf. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, would you take the wonders of your love that are found in Jesus Christ alone and drill them deep into our hearts and lives so that our lives with one another here at Grace and Peace and with our families and neighbors and co-workers and extended family and indeed to the ends of the earth could be advertisements pointing people to no greater love than that found in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.